said that I could start talking and that y'all would keep talking and we'll just see who can talk louder. So since I have the microphone, I guess that will be me. Um, if you have a Bible, turn to uh, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We actually sang a song this morning that's based off of this text. It's going to read the whole chapter. It's short. This is John speaking. He says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying... Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for your people who gather together all over this world and call upon your name. And Father, we thank you for this time that we have. We pray that it would be productive, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you might know that uh, I was here yesterday and uh, preached five times uh, at a... uh, at your uh, Providence Bible Conference is what you call it, right? And, and what we focused on was on um, uh, feelings, emotions, and our faith. And what we did yesterday is we unfolded some foundational truths, and that is that God is revealed in Scripture as a God of perfect emotion, that He actually communicates with us passionately, earnestly in Scripture, 
And uh, then we looked at the fact that we were created in his image and his likeness. And so if God is a God of perfect emotion, then we are created not only with a will like God and a mind like God, but we also have emotions. Then we talked about the fact that, um, <clears throat> that because of the fall, that sin actually has impacted and corrupted basically every faculty of our being, mind, will, and emotions. And so uh, the emotions don't work quite like they should, and in fact sometimes can, can lead us astray and so forth. Then we talked about how the gospel begins the transformation, not only in the renewing of our mind and in the reinvigoration of our will, but also in the restoration of God-glorifying emotion. And uh, then we looked at the Lord Jesus as our pattern. Of course, Jesus is perfect God. He's the exact representation of his Father. He is the image of the invisible God. So when you look at Jesus, you see his Father. And uh, then Jesus is also perfect humanity without sin. And so the, uh, the, the theological premise there at that point is that Jesus is the perfect model of representing emotion in God and emotion in man as emotion ought to be. And so we looked at a few uh, aspects of uh, Christ's emotional life and how he is the pattern for us. And then we took up, uh, we were going to take up two subjects, and we only got to one. Um, as we think about our growth in our Christian faith, on the one hand, we have to think about cultivating or bringing to life a godly emotion, and then we need to think of how to put to death or to control ungodly or sinful emotion. What we did yesterday afternoon is we looked at anger, which, of course, there's righteous anger, but frankly, not very many of us know a whole lot about righteous anger. Most of us know what would be called sinful anger. And so we talked about that and how to actually control that through the Word of God and so forth. We were going to try to get to worship because my, um, my premise is, is that in worship, which is, um, and we're talking about corporate worship, all of life is worship, right? There's a sense in which all of life is to be lived to the honor and glory of God. But there's a sense in which, uh, as we talk about worship, we're focusing on corporate worship. What we do is we gather together as the people of God. And uh, the, the two fundamental elements of worship actually is, is singing and then the preaching and hearing of God's Word. Of course, we offer prayer, give our tithes and offerings and those things, but it is preaching and, and singing that we look at in terms of corporate worship. And so um, my, my, my fundamental premise is this, and this is why it fits into the series, is that it's actually in worship, particularly worship in song and worship in the word preached, that actually the godly emotions are, are cultivated and can grow, all right? And so we're just going to focus in our uh, brief time together on worship in song and uh, do you know what people think about when they think about worship in song today? They think about what's called the worship wars. You ever heard that expression, the worship wars? Um, you know, and what are the two sides of the worship wars? Anybody know? Okay, hymns are traditional versus contemporary, right? And we have this big battle, and, and uh, there was a church... And uh, the pastor wanted to introduce some of the new songs to the congregation. 
And uh, the fact is, is that most in the congregation did not want the new songs. And the pastor was, was convinced that the new songs honored the Lord and exalted Christ, and the church almost split over the worship wars. But what's interesting is that the church that I'm talking about is the Northampton Congregational Church that was pastored by Jonathan Edwards, and the controversy I'm talking about goes back to the 1730s. The old songs were the songs from the Psalter. The new songs were, believe it or not, Isaac Watts' paraphrases of the Psalms. All right? So that kind of puts that into perspective for us, doesn't it? What we now consider to be the traditional, what we consider to be the you know, the holy and the sacred, at one time was considered to be the new, the contemporary, and uh, threatened to destroy the church. Um, let me just say this. The worship wars actually missed the whole point uh, about worship. The issue is not how old a song is or how new a song is. The issue is actually not even what instruments are used in a song. Um, people have personal preferences but the fact of the matter is, is that there's no passage in the Bible that would, uh, that would limit what we can use, what we can't use. So the worship wars actually miss the point. What we need to understand is whether the song is 10 minutes old or 1,000 years old. Every once in a while, we sing a song from the 4th century um, that um, of the Father's love begotten. Uh, so some, we sing old songs, we sing new songs, but here's the reality is that worship and song is actually a vital part of our Christian life. There are fundamental reasons why we not only have historically been a singing people, but that we must be a singing people. And my other premise is this. Not only must we be a singing people, but we must realize that worship in song is a gift from God that actually engages both the head and the heart but primarily the heart. Worship and song always includes not only singing things that are true, but also engaging the emotions. Jesus tells us that we must worship the Father, how? In spirit and in truth. And so worship and song is therefore not only a mandate for the people of God, but it also functions to actually stir up and to cultivate God-honoring emotions within us. And so let me just give you a number of reasons why we worship God by singing. The first is this, is that the biblical faith has always been a singing faith. Think about this. When the children of Israel were delivered from the land of Egypt, and they actually crossed the Red Sea, we have that recorded for us in Exodus 13 and 14, when they actually were redeemed and brought out of Egypt and brought through the Red Sea, do you know the first thing they did, Exodus chapter 15? They sang. Miriam and the women grabbed tambourines and they sang. And their song was a celebration of God's redeeming power. God's people have always been a singing people. When, even when you get to the book of Revelation and you get to Revelation 4 and 5 and you see this, this scene in heaven, the throne room of heaven... Do you know what the four living creatures are doing and the 24 elders and the angels, the myriads and myriads of angels? Do you know what they're all doing? They're actually all worshiping God, singing. And so even in heaven, 
those beings that have been created, actually, their fundamental purpose is to worship God and to worship God in song. At the end of the book of Revelation, when you get to chapter 15, you see this scene in heaven. And you see these re- the redeemed nations, and do you know what they're doing? They're actually singing praise to God. And so from beginning to end, the people of God have always been a singing people because the biblical faith is a singing faith. You can't actually, and it doesn't matter whether it's been a cappella or just the psalms or uh, singing uh, uh, hymns or new songs. The fact is, is that God's people all over the world are a singing people because the biblical faith is a singing faith. I've preached in Zambia and... It is moving to hear them sing songs that actually um, I can't follow. But the joy and the exuberance of them singing is, is a moving experience. And somebody may whisper to me the song that they're singing, and I may have an uh, understanding of what that song may be about. But God's people all over the world are a singing people. Um, going to Latvia, the people uh, after 70 years of communism, of course, were um, you know uh, really an oppressed, beaten down people. But the only time that I ever saw them come out of that um, that very reserved demeanor is when they were singing God's praise. Why? Because the biblical faith is a singing faith. The second reason we worship God by singing is because when we sing, singing both expresses truth and stirs the emotion. And so I put it like this, singing is for expressing and stirring. When we sing, what do we sing? We don't just do a mantra. We don't just take a simple um, phrase and just repeat it over and over and over and over again. People in Eastern religions will often do that to get into a, quote, meditative state. But the fact is, is that God's people have always been people who sing truth. So our singing actually expresses truth. Every song that we sang this morning, whether it was a new song or an old song, actually expressed truth. Whether it was Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord or whether it was the Revelation song, it doesn't make any difference. Each one of them expressed truth. We were singing things that are true. True about God. True about Christ. True about His work of salvation. True about His glory. True about creation. True about who God is and what He's like. And so uh, singing is for expressing truth, but singing is also for stirring. If singing or if, if worship was not also designed to stir our hearts, do you know what we would do instead of sing? We would just read, right? So could you imagine worship just being us just simply reading propositional statements uh, in, a, in a, quote, hymn book? Well, that's not worship. Worship actually is the engagement, not only expressing truth as we sing, but also stirring the heart. One of my heroes is Jonathan Edwards. And um, is he one of your heroes, Sean, Jonathan Edwards? Okay. Um, I used to tell people he was the Boardman patron saint, but uh, they didn't believe me. Um, Jonathan Edwards, in his classic work, A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections, says, The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly, that is completely, to excite and express religious affections. 
No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. In other words, Edwards is saying it it seems as if God actually creates music and singing to go together in his worship for the simple fact to stir our affections. Now, if you were here yesterday... You'll remember that I said that the emotions actually are an indicator of what we truly believe at the deepest level and actually are a reflection of our values. And so think about that. If, if at the core of your being you have the conviction, the belief, the faith that God is true, His Word is true, Christ is the Son of God, Christ is the Savior, Christ is King. If you have those truths as the core of your being and you actually value, you esteem the God of the Bible, what better way to express that in emotion than by singing? And so the biblical faith is a singing faith. We sing because singing expresses truth and stirs the emotion. Now, what kind of emotion should actually be stirred? When we worship... Understand, we're engaging both the head and the heart, right? And so, um, you guys saying a mighty fortress is our God? Have you ever actually just gone through that hymn just slowly? Not singing, but just slowly. It is 16 ounces to the pound full of biblical truth. Every phrase in that hymn actually is chock full of truth about God. Right, and, and the reality is, is that you could never actually soak in mentally all of the truth that you're singing <laughs> by singing it once. Now, I'm not suggesting that we sing a mighty fortress five or six times so that we can soak it in, but here's the point, is that as we sing, there are going to be songs that are very, very heavy in content that mentally go beyond our capacity to soak it all in, but there are other songs that we sing that have a repeated refrain or a chorus. They're shorter, and they're no less true, although they may contain a smaller chunk of truth. Sometimes it is in those songs that we're able to actually meditate and contemplate the truth that we're singing in a way that, that you can't necessarily do with a mighty fortress. And so there's, there's head and heart, which is one of my reasons why at our church we do both hymns and choruses because both of those things work in tandem with each other. I don't want to give up the the meat and potatoes of a mighty fortress, but neither do I want to give up the contemplative, meditative power of um, of the Revelation song or, um, or Worthy is the Lamb or something like that. And so the uh, worship engages both head and heart The affections are stirred and they're cultivated as we worship. And so what kind of affections are actually cultivated while we worship? These are at least the affections or the emotions that should be cultivated while we worship. I understand, first of all, that, that worship can become very ritualistic. You can come, you can sit in the pew, sit in the same pew you sat in uh, last week, and uh, you know the hymnal forwards and backwards, and when they say turn to hymn number 469, you already know what that hymn is, and, uh, and, and you just, you've been doing this for years, and it's very, very easy for our, for our worship and song to get into a rut 
that ends up being just simply ritual uh, and in a sense um, uh, just sort of a, a dead formalism, all right? We never want our worship to be like that. We always want our worship to actually so engage our minds with truth that our hearts then are moved and produce what, what uh, the old timers would call holy emotion or holy affections. So what kind of emotion should be expressed in our worship? Well, the first would be a, a sense of reverence and awe. As we come into the presence of God, as, as, as we gather as his people, so today, let me just use as an example. A passage was read that was, what did we call that reading of the passage? The call to worship. What we're doing is we're reading a portion of Scripture and we're saying that that, that portion of Scripture is calling us to worship. Then we offer prayer, offered prayer right at the beginning. Oftentimes we call that opening prayer what? The Invocation. What are we doing? We're actually invoking God's presence to draw near to us as we seek to draw near to Him. And here's the thing. We need to remember that we're actually entering into the presence of a holy God. You cannot do that tritely. You cannot do that superficially. You cannot do that half-heartedly. You actually have to realize that we're entering into the presence of a holy God. In fact, God is so holy. In Leviticus chapter 10, you remember Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, thought that they would actually do a little science experiment and offer up. Does anybody remember how, how it's put? They offered up what? Strange strange fire before the Lord. In other words, they approached God and offered up in worship something that God had not prescribed. And um, did God say, wow, that's pretty creative. I like that. No, actually God killed Nadab and Abihu. And then when Moses spoke to Aaron, Moses relaying the words of God says, has God not said that those who draw near to me shall treat me as holy? It doesn't matter whether you sit in the same pew and have for 50 years. The fact is, is that as we gather as God's people, we're entering into the presence of a holy God, and there should be most definitely the affections of reverence and awe, but also love and gratitude. Love to the God who loves us. Gratitude to the God who sent his son for us. The, love and gratitude, by the way, are in fact emotions, and, and those should be stirred as we sing these songs of praise to God. Also think about contrition or penitence. Um, there are actually songs that have been written throughout the history of the Christian church that are designed to, to stir our sense of contrition before God. We sing a, a hymn that's based on Psalm 51. It's called God Be Merciful to Me, and uh, it's, it's two or three hundred years old. And uh, it's based on Psalm 51, and even the way that the melody is written, the melody is written in a way that actually is very sober. It's not a song of triumphant joy, like how great thou art, and it is not a song of meditation on the love of Christ, like, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, but there is a somber tone to it. And why, why is that so? Well, it's Psalm 51. It's one of the penitential psalms. So the music actually is appropriate to the words. Why? Because stirring the emotions or the affections of contrition and repentance before God is part of what worship does. What is the worship book of the, of the Bible? 
Is there actually a hymn book in the Bible? The book of Psalms. What's interesting is as you look at Israel's hymn book, there is a a whole panorama of emotion that's supposed to be expressed in worship. I I would challenge you, read through the book of Psalms from beginning to end and notice how many emotions are actually not only just expressed but but prescribed or commanded, but the predominant emotion that is supposed to be expressed in worship according to the Psalms is what? Joy. Joy. Rejoicing in God. Actually taking joy in what He has done. And so I like to think of it like this. Here we are. We're God's people. We're God's family. Okay? So if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, and you look around and you see other people who are in Christ, um, they're, they're your family, right? God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our Savior. As we gather together on the Lord's Day, do you know what we're doing? We're having, we, we have the joyful benefit of having a weekly family reunion in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why we meet on the first day of the week, and we gather actually as children who have been redeemed, who have been saved, our sins have been forgiven, and so the predominant emotion to be expressed in our worship is going to be joy, joy for all that God has done for us. Number three, we sing because God is great and glorious. Uh, There are actually just hundreds of examples in the Psalms. Uh, I just would like you to turn to one example. Uh, Psalm 95. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing for joy, there it is, to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So these first two verses actually are a summons to worship, right? It's actually a summons to God's people. Now there's actually two emotions that are, that are also uh, summoned, and that is what? One's repeated three times. <laughs> Joy. And then the other is thanksgiving or gratitude. So there's the summons to worship. And so here we have this call to worship. And it is exuberant worship. It is fervent worship. But why in the world are we called to this kind of joyful, exuberant worship? Verse 3. Do you see the critical word explaining the reason why we are to worship this way? For. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are are His also, the sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. And so we have the summons to worship with joy and thanksgiving, but then we're given the reason why we should, and it's not just because God said so. Now, if God just said so, that would be enough. Those of us who are dads, there are times where we've told our kids, you need to do this, and they say, why? And we answer, what? Because I said so. And so if God says that, That's enough. But God actually gives us motivation and reason why we're supposed to worship like this. It's because he is the great king. And the whole creation is his. In other words, he's great and he's glorious and he's the creator and he's worthy to be praised. You can actually go on in Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Again, summons to worship. 
What's the reason? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then it goes on today if you hear his voice. And so here we have reasons why we should worship God. He's great. He's glorious. He's worthy to be praised. As we come into God's presence, we sing because God is the creator. God is glorious in triunity. He's awesome in holiness. He's majestic. He's transcendent. He is the God who is the sovereign king. But we, not, we sing because God is great, awesome creator. Um, but we sing for another reason. Not only do we worship and praise God because he is the only true and living God and the God who made all things, but we also worship and praise God because he is the God who not only is sovereign creator, but also loving redeemer. In other words, if all we knew about God was that he was the sovereign creator, that would be enough to elicit praise and worship from us but there's something more that should actually stir our hearts even deeper, and that is the God who made all things is also the God who has saved us. He is the God of redeeming grace. And the fact is, is that if we have no understanding of the gospel, we'll never actually worship God as we ought, because preeminently we worship God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit who applies that redemption to us as the one who has saved us. And so again, the Old Testament example of salvation is the Exodus. What do they do after the Exodus? They sing. Uh, God is worthy to be praised. Um, you could read throughout the Psalms. Um, God did what? He actually heard my cry, lifted me out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, and put a new song of praise in my mouth. When God saves us, when we experience his redeeming grace, it is cause for exuberant praise. So we worship God in sending, for sending Christ. We worship God for his grace in Christ dying for our sins. I actually love singing the gospel. That marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace, grace, God's grace. We sang that this morning, right? Grace that is greater than all my sin. That is, that is a wonderful reason to worship and praise God with a sense of joy and thanksgiving. And so gospel-saturated worship, we worship God because of his redeeming grace. Then we also sing because God actually commands us to sing. Here's what I alluded to earlier, and, and um, I'd like to just take a minute on this because um, what would you think if Pastor Sean got up one morning and said, you know, esteem me. Honor me. Worship me. What would you do? Well, you'd fire him. You'd stone him first, then fire him, right. Okay? And you'd, because you'd think to yourself, why in the world would a mere human being be asking for such adulation and praise, it doesn't make any sense, and uh, what an, here's the word we'd use, right, what an egomaniac, right, what an egomaniac. Sometimes when we read the commands in the Bible to praise God, where God says, praise me, worship me, honor me, love me, obey me, sometimes we think, ah, kind of sounds like an egomaniac. Maybe God is like a cosmic egomaniac. And the reality is, 
is that God actually commands our praise because he is truly worthy of our praise. In other words, if, if a human being said, praise me, worship me, we'd say, well, you know what? You're not worthy to be worshiped or praised. But when the infinite God of all of creation says, worship and praise me, there's actually something morally right about worshiping and praising him as the infinitely worthy God. In fact, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that if you worship and praise anything else other than God, there's a special word for that. What is it? Idolatry. And idolatry is always morally reprehensible because you're actually worshiping something instead of God. So it's actually morally right for God to say, I, I am, this is just a matter of fact, I am the infinitely holy God. I am infinitely worthy of your praise. And in fact, it's morally right for you to worship me. That's the very reason that you have been created. And so we sing not only because God is great and glorious and he's our loving redeemer, but we also sing because he has told us to and he is worthy. One last one. I heard the magical bell. Uh, four more hours, okay. <laughs> we sing because as God's people... We'll be singing all throughout eternity. Read the book of Revelation. You see the people of God in the eternal state. What are they doing? Revelation chapter 14 is just an example. You see God's people singing. There was a lady one time in our church. She's a wonderful lady, wonderful Christian lady. Loved the Lord, really loved the Lord. Loved his word, but she didn't like singing. And she came up to me one day and she goes, I have a favor to ask you. Can we do the sermon first and then the singing after, and that way I can listen to the sermon and then I can leave? And I said, well, well why would you want to do that? And she says, I, I just, I don't, I don't like singing. I, I don't get into it. And I said, Kathy, do you realize how bored you're going to be in heaven? <laughs> There's not going to be any more reason for preaching. You and I are going to be out of a job, right? In heaven, Sean and I will be out of a job. You won't need anybody to teach you God's word anymore. But the fact is, is that we will always be singing. Now, I don't know if, if worship leaders will have a job. I have a feeling we'll have more highly qualified worship leaders in heaven. But the fact is, is that we, were, we will be singing throughout all of the endless ages, and so I told Kathy, I said, listen, this is actually practice. This is rehearsal for heaven. So you have to start getting used to it and not only get used to it, but like it. By the time she moved, she, uh, she got married to a wonderful man and moved up to Oregon. And before she moved, she came and told me, she said, you know, I actually love to worship God in song now. Thank you for telling me that I'd be bored in heaven. <laughs> We're going to be singing throughout the endless ages and we're going to be singing, we're going to be worshiping in the immediate presence of God and of the Lamb and of the holy angels. We're going to be worshiping throughout all of eternity and so therefore what we're doing here on earth is actually a reflection of what's already going on in heaven. What we're doing here on earth is preparation for heaven. And so God calls us to sing and he calls us to engage our heads and our hearts and to worship him we should never offer to God half-hearted worship, but we should be whole-souled, fervent worshipers of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would challenge us to examine our own hearts as to uh, how we come to you in worship. And we pray that we would worship you with all that we are. Lord, we pray that we would worship you fervently as your people gathered together, but we also pray that would so spill over that all of life would truly be worshiped to you, for you are worthy. In Christ's name, amen.